Hello and welcome to The X-Ray. I'm Fernando Espuelas in Washington. If you're paying attention, it's hard not to conclude that American democracy is living on the edge. The recent indictment of former President Donald Trump is a kind of trumpet blast announcing a new era. The time of unquestioned American political stability is now over. And in this new Trumpified era of chaos, we are once again threatened by a powerful old ideology that has become ever more mainstream, white nationalism. FBI Director Christopher Wray has identified radical white nationalist groups as one of the most serious domestic terrorism threats to the homeland. This dangerous ideology with roots in the European colonial era sells the idea that white people are superior to all others, the natural rulers of the country, and any attempt towards a post-racial society is actually a plot to replace white people as the rightful leaders of the nation. The shock troops of the January 6th insurrection, the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers, are fervent believers in this un-American worldview. Before being fired by Fox News, Tucker Carlson drove big ratings with his frequent rants about replacement theory, a variant of white nationalist ideology that claims that Jews and other minorities are actively trying to replace white voters with immigrants from African and Latin American countries. It's a dangerous stew of hatred, resentment, and ignorance. But it's also a powerful animating force that has activated the far right in the country. Today, I dig into this dark shadow threatening American democracy with Jonathan Greenblatt. He is CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, one of the nation's oldest and most effective anti-racism organizations. Greenblatt is on the front lines of the battle against white nationalism and its toxic wave of hatred. Here's my conversation with Jonathan Greenblatt. Jonathan Greenblatt, welcome to The X-Ray. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Fernando. Jonathan, uh, let's start with sort of a, a big picture outlook here. What's the threat of white supremacy to the United States? So let's step back. So ADL is the oldest anti-hate group in America. We've been tracking anti-Semitism, extremism, and all types of bigotry for 110 years. And I would say that extremism in any form is a threat, right, to society. In this moment, we are particularly concerned about the growth of right-wing extremism, particularly white nationalism. So I'll acknowledge that, again, extremism comes in many forms. But in terms of right-wing extremism, which has been the ideology broadly defined that's been responsible for the vast majority of extremist-related murders over the past decade, upwards of 75 to 80 percent. There are different sort of subspecies. I think about sovereign citizens, which is a group of people who don't believe in the legitimacy of the U.S. government. I think about the Boogaloo movement, which is a group of people who want to encourage violent civil unrest, like domestic conflict. I think about the armed militia movement, which you know, some of them are preppers, some of them are just Second Amendment sort of fanatics, but people who believe that the Constitution allows them to, it, they believe in something far different than the, quote, well-regulated militia that the Founding Fathers had in mind. But very specifically, we are deeply concerned about all of those, but in particular, white nationalists. 
this is a racist movement that believes in the superiority of the quote unquote white race. I put that in quotes because there is no white race. Right. Um, who want to create a white homeland, who believe that minorities, uh, particularly ethnic or racial minorities, are somehow defiling the country and who typically think that a cabal of Jews are responsible for, you know, by design for the state of affairs. So white supremacy, as we sometimes talk about it, can be referred to as kind of the structural racism, which may favor or privilege uh, people who present as white. But white nationalism is the violent ideology that characterizes a segment of the population who are prone to violence and regularly and strategically employ uh, bigotry as a weapon to advance their cause and to diminish or marginalize other groups of people. Do you think white nationalism is gaining ground in the U.S.? Is this a growing threat to the democratic system? Well, there is no question that white nationalism is gaining ground, but I think we need to kind of break down well, what does that mean? So white nationalism isn't new. I would say like the KKK was a form of white nationalists that came to fore, you know, after reconstruction and the end of the civil war. And the second incarnation of the KKK came to fore actually in 1913, precipitated by the Leo Frank trial, the same moment in time that catalyzed the growth of the ADL. White nationalism can also be found not just in the resurgent KKK in the South, but other, you know, dom indigenous domestic racist movements like the John Birch Society, which grew in prominence in this country in the 20th century and has now pretty much receded from view. But today, we certainly see white nationalism gaining ground in ways that I think would please the people who are behind these other more overt racist movements. And I'll explain what I mean. Number one, we've seen white nationalist language normalized in the political discourse. That's the result. Certainly, again, there have always been racist politicians espousing ugly ideas. I'll remind your listeners that David Duke ran for the Senate and nearly won uh, in Louisiana in the, uh, you know, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago. Yeah. And people like Strom Thurmond made their career, literally made their bones as politicians, you know, supporting segregation. So, Racism isn't new in the politics of the South or the United States more broadly, but we've seen white nationalist discourse normalized by political figures like Donald Trump, who, irrespective of who his daughter and son-in-law may be, uh, some of his advisors even, some of the people sitting with him, you know, courtside, if I might say, you know, at the table uh, in... Uh, in Manhattan this past week. Nonetheless, as recently as his exclamations about his purported trial, his constant, relentless focus on George Soros right. directly evokes the kind of anti-Semitic tropes that white nationalists, you know, love. And they hearken back to Rothschilds, they hearken mm -hmm. back to protocols of Zion. The use of terms Fernando, like globalist, right. which is a euphemism used by white nationalists to talk about Jews. Internationalists, too. The Great Replacement yeah. Theory. 
which is something that he and political pundits like Tucker Carlson and others have again routinized now as part of the GOP standard talking points. So one way white nationalism is gaining ground is their ideas have now kind of almost become pervasive in the political conversation in ways that would have been unimaginable a decade ago. Number two, we're seeing far more examples of white nationalist propaganda. Uh, last year, the ADL tracked 108% increase in white supremacist propaganda across the country, stickering, flyering, mm -hmm. um, banner passes over the freeway, pamphleting, tabling, et cetera. Uh, this was the highest number we've ever seen in the past seven years since we started tracking this. And just to put that in some context, Fernando, we did not track white nationalist propaganda because there was no need to. It wasn't really a prominent thing in public places until about seven years ago, and it's only gotten worse. And then thirdly, I would say we have extremist candidates now openly talking about their quote unquote Christian nationalism, openly talking about demonizing the other side as in awful sort of ways. Look, I got to be frank. I mean, the United States was founded by religious refugees who were trying to flee persecution to create a pluralist nation in which everyone could flourish. That's why the First Amendment explicitly talks about, you know, freedom of religion and why freedom of worship and freedom of assembly are such essential elements of not just our constitution, but I would say our national ethos. Mm -hmm. So politicians today who talk about Christian nationalism, that's very frightening to me as a religious minority because that's not the place where I was born and that's not the country in which I'm raising my children. So white nationalism, it's true that the recruiting is up. We see some signs of that. But what I'm more concerned about is the things that may be less people, you know, marching down Main Street and more their ideas insinuating themselves into the public discourse their willingness to show up openly in public spaces and their ability to not just capture the conversation with their, you know, ideas, but to insert individuals into our political process, openly embrace their ideas and openly and unapologetically embrace their ideas. That Fernando is brand new. And and what is the role of uh, right wing media, you know, places like Fox News and, and uh, Newsmax and others like that in spreading this propaganda and normalizing it? For example, recently you just uh, mentioned it, this whole idea of Soros funded people like Alvin Bragg and other officials. It's code, right? I mean, it's basic anti-Semitic code, which then when it's repeated in the quote unquote sort of right-wing mainstream, if there's such a thing, essentially becomes normalized and it's almost a, a gateway drug, right? It's a mechanism to foment hate. Is that a legitimate understanding of what's happening? That's, yeah, I mean, that's not wrong. What I would say is that it is okay, totally permissible to call out political donations by any individual, right? It is totally reasonable to say, I deeply disagree with what George Soros or the Open Society Foundation is funding in terms of criminal justice reform. I, I, I deeply disagree with the way that this individual is funding, I don't know, certain political candidates. That is normal. You can criticize George Soros just like you can criticize the Koch brothers. What's different is the relentless and the almost ruthless demonizing of this individual, this Jewish 
Holocaust survivor with anti-Jewish invective. And it might very well be that the people who are saying these things, Fernando, don't contextualize it that way, don't understand what's behind it. But I can tell you the people who are pioneering this language absolutely do. And it's with intention that they are playing these chords, if you will. So, and pulling on these strings, the string of anti-Semitism, um, the string of anti-Jewish hate. And look, I think you could almost think about anti-Semitism as the canary in the coal mine of democracy. So as anti-Semitism flourishes, and it has always existed, let's also, let me just say that clearly, Fernando, like anti-Semitism didn't start with Donald Trump. Right. It didn't start with certain radical politicians on the left. I mean, anti-Semitism has existed for thousands right. of years. It's persisted across cultures and different across continents and different political eras. I mean, it is a it is almost like a constant of the human condition. What is different today, what is novel about this variant is people who know exactly what they are doing, to your point, are kind of using, again, the current political environment to normalize it. And so when media outlets, whether it's Fox News or Facebook, or, or any others push this stuff out and promote it, I almost describe it, I mean, I do describe it and would characterize it as a kind of hate laundering. Mm. I mean, there's a way we think about, let's say, money laundering, where illegal money is put into legitimate institutions to wash it and to make it okay. I think we see a kind of hate laundering here, where ideas like the great replacement theory, which is absolutely about this idea mm -hmm. that a cabal of Jewish people, mm -hmm. again, there is none, but this idea that a cabal of Jewish people are plotting to commit white genocide by flooding the country with foreigners, fill in the blank, Mexicans, yeah. Muslims, etc., yeah. and, and or creating, um, like encouraging black people to procreate with white people. I mean, this is the madness of it. It's so yeah ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So when those people were marching through Charlottesville saying mm -hmm. Jews will not replace us, this is what they're talking about. And when again, like Tucker Carlson every night on his show talks about Democrats are trying to replace you. It is certainly true that there have been people in the Democratic Party over the years who have thought that changing demographics in this country would benefit them because of historical voting patterns. That is super different. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that is super different. It may be wrongheaded, but it's super different than espousing this idea that there's a plot right. driven by a cabal of people who are trying to subvert the order and again change the racial demographics of this country which is direct a direct invocation of this white nationalism of their fever dreams mm -hmm. and so i say all this fernando because again anti-semitism isn't new mm -hmm. but when it flourishes like this because media outlets use it to drive ratings you know mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um that is not just dangerous for jewish people although it is it is symptomatic of a sickness in our society i really think it's illustrative of like a disease of the body politic and that should worry all of us whether you're jewish or not jewish because i think we all stand to suffer mm -hmm. and we all will lose in the long run if the democracy as we know it unravels 
Nobody benefits. And it's a fiction that this will benefit the right. Like there will be no right and left when the country implodes. Mm -hmm. That's how I see it. And you just mentioned this, but what level of responsibility do you assign for these phenomena, the, the you know, sort of the creeping anti-Semitism, the white nationalism to the social media companies who on one hand say, we're not editors, we're, we're just a platform, yet those platforms are the mechanism by which most Americans really get their information and certainly get disinformation, such as this kind of racist crap. Well, if we try to understand like why this is happening, and I must say, the one thing I would also come back to, Fernando, even though you haven't directly asked me about this, is extremism in this moment, okay, when the MAGA movement uses such uh, regularly and routinely employs sort of rhetorical violence, right? When the candidate poses with baseball bats mm -hmm. and accuse again, you know, next to picture himself with, you know, public servants. Mm -hmm and describes people of color as animals and all this other stuff like that is ugly and very worrisome and unique. And so let's just understand the singular danger of that. There is also radicalism of the left, like hardened anti-Zionists, the people who are beating up Jews in broad daylight here in New York just a couple of years ago during the Gaza conflict, mm. or who routinely accuse the Jewish people or the Jewish state of other plots and whatever, like that's all frightening too. But if we try to understand why extremism of all types is on the rise, why our national temperature seems to be getting hotter and hotter and hotter, and you and I, all of us are like frogs in the pot, social media is the single most significant force. It is a super spreader of this virus of hate and this contagion of extremism. I mean, Facebook and its meta and its platforms like Facebook and Instagram they don't get to say we're the telephone company when their algorithms with intention mm -hmm. in, in you know amplify and intensify how certain stories or certain posts are promoted and seen like the telephone company model falls apart i mean the telephone is a dumb medium right right where you don't know necessarily what's being transmitted and by conversation with you or x conversation with y it isn't privileged in any particular way. It doesn't move faster. It isn't louder. It's heard as a point-to-point -point communication. Social media is entirely different. It's a broadcast medium like television or radio or print where it chooses to highlight certain things. Now, it might not be an editorial board making that decision. It may be an algorithm That's made by automating people. that decision. Impact is the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the idea that they aren't held liable mm -hmm. when liable is, is you know, is promoted on their platforms, it is, honestly, Fernando, it is bananas. Mm -hmm. It is illogical and it's wrong. And so, look, these companies want to make money like broadcast businesses without any of the cost structure. And then they want to claim that they're utilities that are just, are there for everyone. And these things, either if you are a utility, you should be regulated like one, or if you're a broadcast medium, you should be responsible for what you broadcast. Like you can't, I don't think they should have it both ways. It is long overdue for government to get involved in. And the last thing I'll say about all this, Fernando, mm -hmm. you know, if I think about our phone, right? Mm -hmm. So most of us, not all of us, most of us open up our phone and we um, look at our newsfeed, let's say our email, okay? That is 
again, that will frame our world. It's it's the goggles through which or the lenses through which we see the world. What's equally, if not more terrifying to me, is while social media is literally ascribing that lens to us invisibly in ways we don't see, generative artificial intelligence will be everything else around that lens. Mm -hmm. And if you think social media is scary, and it is, the AI world is going to be, I mean, terrifying in ways we can't even predict. Mm -hmm. And I desperately think we need to get our arms around this stuff now before it's too late. Well, let me ask you about that. What do you think the government should do about all this? I mean, is this, uh, we have a somewhat uh, incapable government right now, incapable of taking action, very divided, as obviously we, we can all tell. This seems to be cr a critical weakness in our whole system, right? Having these powerful platforms that are spewing out uh, lies and hatred and, and enraging people around those lies. Is there a role for government or is this a private Facebook needs to change their strategy or, or Twitter needs to change their strategy? Well, like you, I spent a lot of years in business, Fernando. I worked in business for a long time and I worked in Silicon Valley. And I've always had a view or I had a view coming into this position at ADL about the importance of self-regulation. And I've always felt like if you're waiting for some 75 year old senator with, you know, her hotmail account. <laughs> literally with his friendster account to save us. Like you are really barking up the wrong tree, mm -hmm. but I've come to the conclusion that left to their own devices, these companies regress to a mean mm -hmm. to an unregulated profit driving society splitting mean. And so we have no choice, I believe other than prayer mm -hmm. to push for leaders to lead and for government to get involved. I mean, I would like to have seen president Biden, come together, you know, with Speaker McCarthy and Leader Schumer and say, let's hold a U.S. government summit on generative artificial intelligence right now and bring Sam Altman, you know, and bring Sundar Pichai from Google and bring Satya Nadella and say, let's do this together. I mean, I think social media and the tools that it offers are combustible, but AI is like a weapon of mass destruction. And if, if we don't get our arms around it, I think we'll be very unhappy with the results. And I read a book a few years ago by Kai Fung Lee is his name. He was the former head of Google research in China. And it was, it's called AI superpowers. It's about the race between China and the U S I don't know. I read it like four or five years ago. It was very troubling. And there's no doubt that China and other superpowers are investing heavy in AI and building, you know, these large language models to power their company's kind of competitiveness. But we've got to keep our eye on that ball, Fernando, mm -hmm. but we can't do that and just hope for, un, you know, like rapacious growth if it comes at the cost of our country right. and it's kind of national cohesion. So I just think it is essential for government and business to lead. We can't hope that either side will do it on their own. They need to come together mm -hmm. and think hard and fast about, I don't want to say pumping the brakes. Like, you know, there was this call last week for a six month moratorium. Six months is nothing. Right. I don't think that's the way to do it. But I do think, you know, to, to use a computing term, we can parallel process mm -hmm. here mm -hmm. and like bring together the right people to start thinking about what are, what are effective guardrails for generative AI to ensure that even as we win the kind of technology arms race, we don't do that at the cost of losing society itself. 
Jonathan, a final question, a personal question. Um, uh, you and I know each other for a long time, and, and we've had discussions in the past about you know how tough it is to deal with this uh, avalanche of hatred that just it's never ending. ADL is out there all the time presenting evidence and trying to get people aware of the danger we're in. Are you optimistic uh, individually as a person, as a leader, obviously, uh, as someone leading uh, a very important organization? But are you optimistic and therefore should we also be optimistic? I'm super optimistic. Like, look, I'm not seeing the world through rose-colored glasses, right? And I don't want to be Pollyannish about this. I mean, I work for President Obama, mm -hmm. and he used the expression he used to use with staff. And I, he was at Public too. we talked about the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice. I actually don't think that's right. I think we have to reach up and grab the arc mm. and twist it in the direction in which we want it to go. I think, again, like any other arc, if left to its own devices, you know, you see a kind of entropy. I mean, things, mm. you leave, if you take your hands off the wheel of the car, it drives off the road. Right. So that being said, why I feel optimistic is because, you know, our young people today give me incredible amounts of hope with their energy, with their enthusiasm, their creativity. They are more pluralistic. They are more open-minded. They are more innovative than those who came before. That's number one. Number two, this country itself, like Fernando, we forget. I mean, we live like in the moment, like I said, frogs, the boiling water. But you know what? This country has endured civil war, global conflict, economic upheaval, natural disasters, you know, crooked presidents. Mm -hmm. And leaders and we've always come through and we've typically come through bigger and better so i believe in america like i am an unashamed patriot i love this country i think it's the greatest democracy in the history of the world and i have lots of faith in our ability to rebound but in order to rebound you need to recognize when there is a problem and you need to be prepared to do the hard work you know in order to make it better i often get asked people say to me when i talk about my book or i'm out speaking different audiences, they say, well, I'm worried about America, especially Jewish people. Right. I mean, the degree of alarm, the degree of anxiety in the Jewish community, Fernando, is off the charts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Anti-Semitism has increased. Incidents, acts of anti-Jewish hate are up more than 500 mm percent -hmm. over the past decade. Attitudes have almost, anti-Jewish attitudes have almost doubled between 2019 and 2022. I mean, literally, Charlottesville, Pittsburgh, Poway, Jersey City, these Colleyville, Texas, these names are now emblazoned in the minds of Jewish people. There's a lot of concern. Well, people say to me, where should I go? My answer, Fernando, mean they mean like, where should I go? Like Canada, Australia, mm. oh, wow. Israel. My answer is, oh, you know where you should go? You should go to work <laughs> because this is the place. This is plan A for all of us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this country has gotten it right in the past. We can get it right again, but we've got to roll up our sleeves, get past this silly partisanship and be prepared to do the work. All right, Jonathan Greenblatt, thank you so much for joining the X-Ray. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Fernando. Thank you, Jonathan. At some level, it's easy to dismiss white nationalism as a phenomenon of marginalized, disturbed people excited by hateful propaganda but that would be a wrong interpretation of where we are. Donald Trump and his most fervent followers have trafficked in racism for a very long time. Remember Obama's birth certificate? They have conditioned a not insignificant portion of the American public to think about their lives through the prism of racial conflict and competition. It's a zero-sum battle between us and them. 
This trumping ideology is as dangerous as it is sickening. And we would be quite dumb not to contextualize it in history. When neo-Nazis marched through Charlottesville with the apparent support of Donald Trump, they chanted, Jews will not replace us. Scholars of genocide are clear the first step towards racial violence is dehumanization of the other. And if you think it could never happen here, think again. As the Israeli historian Yeshuda Bauer wrote, the horror of the Holocaust is not that it deviated from human norms, the horror is that it didn't. What happened may happen again to others, not necessarily Jews, perpetrated by others, not necessarily Germans. We are all possible victims, possible perpetrators, possible bystanders. Let's make sure that whatever else, we are never bystanders to white nationalism and its potential for human destruction. I want to thank Jonathan Greenblatt for his comments and leadership, and I want to thank the Issue One production team, Nicole Legacy, Sydney Richards, and Renee Pineda. And I want to thank you for joining me on this episode of The X-Ray. I'm Fernando Espuelas in Washington. For more information on this podcast, check out thexray.org and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. The X-Ray with Fernando Espuelas is an editorially independent production of Issue One.